My name is Lalu Davies Yemitin, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. From what we get, we can make a living. What we give, however, makes a life. Arthur Ashe. Winston Churchill said similar words, but in a different way. Uh, my guest today embodies and exemplifies that idea of trying to make a life by what he gives. He's national president of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, Grandpa Mark Ruben Shelton, Ruben A. Shelton III. Welcome to my brother podcast, and thanks so much for making yourself available uh, for this important discussion. Well, thank you, my brother. It's uh, the honor is mine. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, I want to dive right in, and you know, just ask you to start by giving us a brief synopsis and introduction on yourself, your background, and sort of how you arrived uh, to where you are. Oh, whoa! <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to do it. So, I um, I was uh, I'm a native of St. Louis, although my uh, family, most of my family, were raised in in uh, Winona, Mississippi. So I like to tell people that I'm actually a native of Mississippi. Uh, nine children were in my family. Uh, I and my little sister were the only ones born in St. Louis. So the rest were raised and uh, born and raised in uh, Mississippi. Um, my family moved to St. Louis uh, probably in the mid fifties, right before I was born. Uh, we always, Initially, it was kind of a struggle, lived in uh, a four-family flat. We lived in one of the units of a four-family flat. And the four-family flat had uh, a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, and a bedroom in the back. But in those four rooms, hell, we had seven kids, right? seven kids. And so it was kind of a, it was kind of a struggle at first. But I like to tell people, uh, and I tell them all the time, that I, I never knew we were poor. Never knew we were poor. Because my mother and father, they always uh, worked to ensure that we had the things that we needed. Uh, my father worked two jobs. He was a cab driver by day. And he worked at the General Motors assembly plant uh, at night. And... Um, so we didn't see him a whole lot, but you know it worked out. My mother never had a job; she always stayed at home. She stayed at home and took care of the kids. So, you know, she never used to. She never liked me to say that she never had a job because because <laughs> her job was probably that uh, my father's two jobs put together because she had to deal with all of us uh, hard-headed youngins, as she was saying. But anyway, born and raised in St. Louis, I went to public schools. Um, in high school, I played basketball. I got to be pretty good. Uh, high school All-American, all that good stuff. Uh, went to the University of Kansas. Uh, played on some really good basketball teams there. I was captain of, uh, of one of the teams that, that did uh, very well. Uh, after that, I went to law school at St. Louis University. And... Um, Worked for a while, went back to school, got my MBA from Washington University in St. Louis. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of other stuff. I don't you know 
want to bore you with uh, all the details right now, but uh, somewhere along the way, you'll get the rest of the details. But that's kind of where I, I, I started. You know, I had various jobs uh, in, in law. Yeah, I was a law clerk to a federal judge right out of law school, worked for a large law firm. Then I went to corporate, to the corporate world, which is actually where I retired about uh, two and a half, three years ago. Um, and again, we can get into more details as we go along. Uh, absolutely. So I want us to sort of go back to uh, your upbringing in Missouri. Tell us a little bit about what that was like, your, your rearing in those early years. Um, I, I remember them being kind of schizophrenic. Uh, I remember... <laughs> I mean, you really didn't know. It was it was kind of a strange situation. We were we were in an all black neighborhood, but it was prior to um, it was prior to the integration of housing. It was prior to um, desegregation of schools, and so even though we were in an all black neighborhood, we had very prominent people in our neighborhood. We had uh, we had black lawyers, black doctors. Uh, teachers, um, I mean, up and down the street, uh, it, it, it was kind of weird. We had a house of prostitution in, in the block. <laughs> we, it, 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 it was just so strange that it, it, it was um, um, it was just a, a weird mix of people who lived in our neighborhood. But in a way, that was good because we got to see all the aspects, all of the different segments of society in our own little microcosm. Uh, and, and it taught you a lot. We learned a lot um, in a neighborhood with alleys and, and we spend most of our time in the alleys and you saw all sorts of things back there. Uh, but the biggest thing about it is that it taught you about life. And I really enjoyed the environment in which I grew up and I, um, and I, and I praise it even to this day. I was sad to see, I was sad to see um, the progress as a kid, I was sad to see it. I was sad to see the progress because a lot of those um, doctors, lawyers, and teachers, when they got the opportunity, they moved out of the neighborhood and they moved to the suburbs. And that kind of took away some of the character um, of that. And some of the younger kids that came behind me, they didn't get the kind of experience that I got. They didn't see the people in the neighborhood that I saw that could have influenced them and encourage them to go on to higher heights as well. So in a way, um, desegregation was good. Uh, housing desegregation was good. But in another way, I think it hurt the communities uh, that I grew up in because they were no longer the same. Yeah, yeah. Can certainly um, understand what is somewhat emblematic of so many other uh, American communities, and you know, and obviously it's one of those things that I think society still reels from uh, today. Uh, so beyond the early years, what was your high school like? I assume at some point you picked up uh, an affinity for basketball. But <laughs> uh, you know, the young kids today they don't really understand what it was like back then. Uh, there was no internet. We had no computers. We had no computer games. 
uh, I got a grandson, 12 years old, and down in Dallas, Texas, right now, and and uh, he plays basketball and he's really good. And we, I'll talk about that in a minute. But when you talk about the days when there was nothing to do at home, so you went outside to do other things like play basketball. That concept is really foreign to them. <laughs> and when you ask, you know, why aren't you outside playing? Why aren't you doing, you know, other things other than, uh, you know, what, having a joystick in your hand and, and, and doing all these stuff? They have no concept of what I'm talking about. Well, of course I got a joystick because that's what all my friends are doing. But we didn't have all of that, so we went outside to play ball. And that's where I got my my love of the game because we were outside all day, every day playing basketball because there was nothing else to do. I mean, obviously, when we were in school, we had to go to school during the day, but uh, especially in the summertime. I mean, that, that, that's all we had to do is run the streets, play basketball. So that's how I got the love of that. And I had a strange situation in, um, in high school. Um, that I'm not real proud about, but it worked out. <laughs> uh, back in the day, and probably still today, high school coaches would recruit players to come to their schools, even though I was in a public school and I was supposed to go to the school within my district. Well, I was a pretty good player. In the eighth grade, I went to um, I went to the United States Youth Games in Washington, D.C., and we participated in sort of a youth Olympics. And my team did pretty well. And my coach on that team told me that I needed to go play for a coach that uh, coached at a high school that was not in my district. So yeah, I didn't know any better. I'm thinking, okay, we're going to do the right thing. You know, talk to my parents. They thought we were doing the right thing. But little did we know that when I went to the school outside of my district, I had to sit out two years. I couldn't play basketball my first two years in high school. And uh, man, I, that was a serious bummer. <laughs> yeah, and I said, can I go back and do it over and do it right? And, and by that time, you couldn't do it. Um, yeah. So I set out my first two years. Uh, I played my entire junior year. But then in my senior year, the teachers went on strike. Hmm. And while they were on strike with the, the first semester of my senior year, we couldn't practice, we couldn't play, we couldn't do anything. So it's little known to most folks because I had such a successful career, uh, you know, award-wise and recognition. Hmm. But I only played a year and a half in high school. Uh, but I still, you know, became a high school All-American. We still had a really good team. We had a lot of success. Uh, the time that I played, we only lost four games. Um, and we beat some really, really good teams from across the nation. And that's how I got recruited to go to the University of Kansas, which, you know, obviously has been a top-tier team since since the beginning. You know, for God's sake, our first uh, our first basketball coach invented the game. <laughs> so uh so it was it, it was a unique experience it was a crazy experience i learned a lot i learned a lot about integrity that's for sure mm -hmm. and um but you know you live life's lessons and they get you to a point 
and you look back and you say, would you do it all over again? Well, if it would get me to the point where I am right now, I probably would because I really like where I am right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what we all aspire to, uh, to, to achieve, right? To be in a place where we're uh, truly happy and reconciled with where we end up uh, in life. And, and, I, I, and I gather it's a good place. You're retired and you're uh, able to give back in such significant ways. Uh, are there some aspects of, um, you know, playing basketball that you might say, because oftentimes you hear people who are athletes who are like, hey, that's where I learned, you know, teamwork and, and you know, shared responsibility, so on and so forth. Are there some of those things that sort of stick out to you from those early years? Yes. Basketball is a little world into its own. You, um, you learn all sorts of skills, interacting with coaches and teammates. Uh, you learn social skills from interacting with your teammates. You learn discipline from what you need to do to get better on, on a regular basis. Um, I mean, you just learn how to compete. And it's not just competing in athletics. It teaches you how to compete in life. And I'm not just talking about playing in the game. I'm talking about the, the the competing, learning how to compete in the preparation for what you're doing. Yeah. Right? Uh, in basketball, everybody's good, especially when you get to a certain level, like the college level. I mean, everybody on my team was a high school All-American. Mm. Every player, right? That's all they recruited was high school All-Americans. So to compete with them, everybody's talented. Everybody can jump. Everybody can run. Everybody can shoot. What's the one determining factor and the one determining factor that you learn that puts you above the rest is that you prepare harder and you work harder. That's the one thing you can't control. You can't control somebody else's talent. You can't control somebody else's work ethic. All you can say to yourself is, I'm not going to let him outwork me. I don't care how good he is. I'm going to work. I'm going to work and I'm going to work. And I'm going to work harder than anybody else because other than that, you're totally indistinguishable <laughs> on a basketball team. Right? <laughs> so, so, so that's what I learned. I learned yeah. discipline. I learned you got to work hard. You got to prepare. And you got to do it better than that person that's in that locker right next to you. Yeah. So you matriculate at University of Kansas. Uh, what was your collegiate experience like? Oh, I was good. It was good. Uh, I enjoyed Kansas. If you know anything about the state of Kansas, it is as flat as a pancake, <laughs> except except for the University of Kansas. <laughs> the University of Kansas is the only part is the only territory is 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 you know is the only part of the geography that sits on a hill. And you can see it from miles away as you as you're driving into the university, and and that's what stuck out to me, that there's something special about this place, um, and it was, it was. It's where I pledged uh, the fraternity. It's where I pledged Kappa Alpha Psi. Had a great time doing that. I made a lot of good friends. I've made a lot of lifelong friends that I still stay in touch with. Um, I've had some friends that have died along the way, and, and, and I'm really sorry about that. Um, 
but I still go back. I, I take my grandkids to the KU basketball camp every summer. Couldn't do it this summer because of you know this damn virus. But um, but uh, every summer I take them back to the KU basketball camp, and they've gotten to know the coaches, and the coaches have gotten to know them, and they have a great time. Uh, I go back to a reunion every five years. Every five years, the basketball program has a reunion of all, all of its former players, and they bring us all back at their expense. And, um, oh, God, it's just, uh, I mean, the enthusiasm of the players coming back together, uh, current and former players, I mean, you just can't beat it. It's a, it's a camaraderie that uh, that is totally indescribable, um, and I just have a great time. And it all goes back uh, to my time at KU. And I'll always appreciate uh, the university because, you know, I ran into a, I ran into an issue where I had a, a career ending injury there and they could have kicked me out. They could have kicked me out on the street, but they said, no, you know, we're going to help you finish. And they did, you know, they stuck by me. They helped me finish, graduated from the university. That's why I'm a lifetime member of the alumni association. And that's why I go back every time I get a chance. And what is it that you uh, graduated in and how did you settle on that major? Yeah, I got a Bachelor of Science in Journalism. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> uh, even though I was, a, I was a good student in high school, there were certain skills. I was in the National Honor Society in high school, right? But there were certain skills that I, I, I didn't exactly acquire while I was there. Um, being a kind of a star athlete, so to speak, you, you, you got some of the favors that other students didn't get. So the teachers, the teachers didn't, they didn't make me work quite as hard as some of the other students, but that hurt me. It hurt me. Um, and I really didn't learn how to write. Right. So when I went to KU and I took some sort of writing class, I can't remember what it was. I remember I had an experience that that devastated me at first, but it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Uh, my writing instructor said, this has got to be the absolute worst paper I've ever, I've ever read. <laughs> and I don't want to tell the people that because it really helped me. He said, this has to be the, 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 the worst written paper I think I've ever read. And um, he says, I'm going to have you do it again. And I also think that you need to, you know, gear your course of study in a direction that's going to help you in these areas, right? Mm -hmm. And journalism was obviously the area. Um, and I learned how to write. Uh, I learned how to edit. Uh, I learned a lot of skills coming out of the William Allen White School of Journalism at the mm -hmm. University of Kansas. And that's another reason why I really love the school, because they, they, they prepared me. Because you know? he knew I wanted to go to law school then. And, mm -hmm. and that background, because I told him, and that background really prepared me. Because what are the two things that you do in law school more than anything else, right? You read and you write. That's what you do. You read and you write. And I mean, you do that hours on, day in and day out. And journalism got me very prepared for that. Yeah. So, you know, you. I'm glad you shared that element, um, uh, that portion of your life story where uh, you're a student athlete and oftentimes there's almost this inherent conflict between athleticism 
and being a student. And and yeah. people often misconstrue the two and it becomes you're an athletic student. Uh, but as a true student athlete, ideally you're there for college, but far too often so many kids fall through the through the cracks until some instructor or some motivating factor sort of shapes them up. But you also mentioned something that I think is essential there. You said, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I think that that, that mattered because, you know, for most people, you might have been simply on the basketball path. And I know it was a different era. It wasn't like how athletes are, are, are you know, the earning capacity of athletes now is not what it was then. Um, but what led you to that decision to want to pursue a career in law? Uh, because I think it's just so important that that, in a sense, helped you find your own path when it wasn't something you had to go find, as most student athletes end up having to do. Mm -hmm. I came up in an era where uh, a lot of the people uh, that I interacted with, you know, they were fighting in the struggle. I mean, I came up in the in the era of the 1960s civil rights movement. And as I looked around, I saw that the people who were having the greatest impact on social change, and I won't say people, I'll say the professions that had the most impact on social change. Uh, the two professions were uh, preachers and lawyers. Those were the two. The preachers were mobilizing folks like you would not believe, you know, a la Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, good Kappa man. Um, and then there were the lawyers who were going to going to court, like uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall. Um, and they were going to court to make sure that that our civil rights were enforced. We actually had lawyers in the legislature that were making sure that uh, laws were enacted to enforce equal opportunity for all. And that's what I saw. Those were the two professions that had the greatest impact. Now there were others, and obviously journalists had an impact on it as well because they were writing about the issues and putting them front and center and in, in, in society. But for the most part, what I saw uh, was that uh, lawyers and preachers had the greatest impact. Now, I knew damn well that God wasn't going to call me to be a preacher. <laughs> so, 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 so my brother, there was only one thing left. Right? Fair enough. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. And so what happens next? You finish your uh, undergraduate studies at uh, Kansas. Where do you attend law school and what? Uh, how do you end up getting admitted uh, into that particular law school? Yeah, it was a uh, and uh, because again I was playing basketball and I and I didn't um, I didn't prepare myself probably as much as I could have, uh, but they had a program where if you go if you go to school in the summer, you know we started school in June, um, and if you got at least a B in a class, it was a contracts class and a legal writing class, um, you would be admitted to the school. I mean, and that was tough. That was one of the toughest things I had ever done, uh, you know, because that was, a, that was a discipline of study that I really had not um, had done before. So, but, you know, worked very hard, did very well in the class. 
Um, and I was admitted to the law school because I went through that summer program. Right? Um, and we just happened to have several, several people in that, in my class, in that program that have gone out to do extremely good things. Uh, I'm pretty proud of that class because the uh, first African-American mayor of the city of St. Louis came out of that class. Uh, the grand ba one of the grand basilis, uh, whatever the plural is, basili <laughs> of Omega Psi Phi came mm -hmm. out of that class. I came out of that class. We've got um, a judge in St. Louis, Judge Jimmy Edwards, who won the, uh, the uh, William, he was honored with the William Rehnquist United States Supreme Court Award. He came mm -hmm. out of that class. I came out of that class and I became the uh, first African-American uh, uh, president of the Bar Association of Metropolitan St. Louis and became only the second African-American president of the State Bar Association, which has 33,000 members. We all came out of that class. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we, you know, we've done some pretty good things. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, so that you had this great program that, in in essence, provided you—I um, don't want to call it a second chance, but uh, an unconventional uh, opportunity right. to pursue uh, a law degree. So, I, you know, I have That's a number right. of friends who are lawyers, and what I often learn from them is like in law school, the first year it matters most because your GPA, the first year, depend determines what kind of internship you have at the end of your first year. Uh, can you talk us through sort of what that experience was like? How did you go from being a 1L and what ultimately led to your transition after you graduated from law school? Um, they told us going in, other law students who had gone through the process, they told us going in that your first year in law school is going to be one of the toughest things you've ever done in your entire life. And that is true. He says, because they're trying to flunk you out. They're trying to separate uh, the wheat from the chaff. You know, they will let people in knowing good and well that not all of you are going to make it. So if you're going to be the one, one of the ones uh, who, who makes it, then, you know, you better go in there and work your butt off and make a commitment to this endeavor. Hmm. And again, learning from my experience in basketball that, you know, there are a whole lot of smart people in this law school. You know, they wouldn't be here if they didn't have some level of intellect. Right. So the one thing I got to do is I got to work harder. I got to work harder than all the rest of them. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I had no background. I had no frame of reference as to what it took to be a successful law student, let alone get out and become a successful lawyer. So I'm learning as I go, you know, in the, in, in the company that I retired from, we had this model that, uh, uh, that we're building the plane while it's in the air. <laughs> right? So that's kind of what I was doing in law school. I was, I was, I was building this plane as I flew. Um, and, and it worked out. I mean, it really did. And, it, and again, it came from um, working extremely hard, working long hours, knowing that that was my commitment. And another thing, I had a, 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 a really good mentor who said, you know, this is three years of your life. 
give it everything you got. Put everything else aside as much as you possibly can, because this three years will go by quicker than you ever imagined, even though you can't see this now. And it's just three years. It's all you got. I took that advice to heart and I gave it everything I had. And, you know, I came out in, in, in the top part of my class, which even for me, I thought that was pretty remarkable. Did you have any clerkships or internships along the way? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I worked uh, in, a, in a law office after my first year. Uh, after my second year, I worked for the Legal Services Corporation and I worked in the elderly law unit uh, working with, um, you, know, you know, sad to say, most of my clients were, uh, were dying patients in high school, in a, in a, in a hospital. Uh, and I would write wills and get their estate affairs uh, in order uh, because they really couldn't afford to go to an estate attorney uh, to do it. Uh, but I learned a lot of compassion there. Uh, and and, this, and this, this one gentleman, I'll never forget him. Uh, my, my boss asked me to go up and draft a will for him. He didn't have a lot, but you know, he wanted to uh, leave it to make sure he left it to certain people in his family. And he was all alone. And you know, I'm asking him questions that I needed to draft the will. Um, and he said, I want to thank you for something. He said, I want to thank you for being here. He says, I have not had a visitor in two weeks. Right? And he said, the fact that you are here, you're not trying to rush out, because I wasn't. You know, I was talking to, we talked about all sorts of things. You know, for the first hour, we talked about everything but the will. You know, we talked about his life, his family. Um, and I learned a great deal of compassion from that experience that, you know, for some people, it just doesn't take much. It just takes a little time, um, a little effort on your part to make a meaningful contribution to somebody's life. And, you know, and that's what that was. But that was my um, that was my clerkship after my second year. And that's when I became sort of a, uh, a fierce fighter for for for, uh, for people who can't fend for themselves working for legal services and right out of school it wasn't that long after I left uh, law school and that I went on the board I went on the board of directors for the legal services uh, corporation in st. Louis and I stayed on that board for almost 30 years from that point and I actually became president of the board I was president of the board for uh, for uh, wow six seven years um, because I really believed in the mission of legal services so yeah I did that that was law school and and right I mean and, and, and right after law school uh, I really took a <clears throat> I really took a good turn excuse me <clears throat> um, I, I um, and this was to totally fortuitous <laughs> totally fortuitous I um because I worked for legal services, there was a, a federal judge in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri. And he was a battler. I mean, he was uh, I mean he was big in the civil rights. He had he had uh, 
he had achieved a couple of firsts in his own right. He was a first black circuit judge in the city of St. Louis and uh, big in the civil rights. And he had heard about me. Don't ask me how, I don't know. But he had heard about me. Um, and he asked if I would come interview for a position with him. I didn't have any reference about these jobs because there was nobody in my family with legal background. Uh, and I didn't really realize until after I got the job. <laughs> this is embarrassing, actually. But I really didn't realize until after I got the job that these are some of the most coveted jobs in law. <laughs> right? Right? That people would cut off their right arm to get these jobs to be a law clerk for a federal judge. Yeah. And I did not realize that until after I got the job. Um, and, you know, you know, there are only most judges have two law clerks and for those two positions, they might have 2000 applications yeah. for two positions because people really, really want those jobs. Um, and they're and they're mainly reserved for people. I mean, you have to do pretty well in school, which I had done. Uh, and they're reserved for these people that for these students that are in the top part of the class. Right? That that's kind of the 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 floor for the people that they that they uh, interview. And man, I didn't know. So um, you know, I just thank the good Lord that I didn't have to be smart. I just had to be lucky. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, and he truly blessed me with that opportunity because that led to every other opportunity I've had in law. You know, from there, uh, I went to work for a major law firm in downtown St. Louis. And, um, and, and that taught me a whole bunch of things. But I, um, I couldn't spend the time that I wanted to spend with my little kids. I had uh, I had daughters that I wanted to spend time with and I couldn't spend time with them because I was always working late nights and on weekends and traveling on a moment's notice. Uh, and so I wanted something that was a little bit more predictable. And that's when I left the firm and went to the corporate world. Yeah. Right. I yeah. want to back up to, you know, you getting that job with the uh, with the federal judge. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's you know, you say you were lucky, but I think what's more poignant uh, to observe is your service allowed you to be noticed. And that created that opportunity. And more importantly, they say success is when opportunity meets preparation. You had done the work, you were prepared. So the confluence of those things led to what, yes, notwithstanding the fact that Providence did intercede perhaps on your behalf, uh, but I just think it's important that we make those observations. I think it's it is essential that, you know, people don't get there purely on luck. That luck oftentimes is married with some degree of merit uh, uh, for what it's worth. So yeah. uh, but I want you to talk a little bit more about what that corporate uh, law firm grind is like. Uh, you know, part of the whole impetus behind this is helping uh, people really understand, you know, the career journeys that people have to follow. So would you describe what those first, you know, couple of years working in a corporate law firm were like? 
Tough, tough, <laughs> very, very tough. Um, wow, long hours. Your day is totally unpredictable. When you go to work, you have absolutely no clue as to what's going to hit you when you walk in that day. You have absolutely no clue uh, what's going to come up during the day because things are constantly coming up that you did not anticipate. Um, I was, at that time, I was one of two black attorneys in the firm. One of two. And the firm had, in the St. Louis office, they had maybe 300 lawyers. So it was a, you know, everything is a learning experience. That learning ex experience was tough. The, uh, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I can remember sitting, you know, staying late at night, you know, having work to do. And sitting and talking to my friend uh, Dorothy, who was the other African American attorney there, you know, and just kind of wondering is is this the way it's supposed to be, right? Um, because number one, you have to have a certain number of what they call billable hours mm -hmm. every year, and you think it's 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 not too bad, and I think it actually averaged out to maybe six and a half or seven hours a day of billable hours. And, and you go in thinking, ah, it's not that tough. But when it's hard to get work from the partners, because you know, they don't think you're the best, right? And they want the best working on their cases, and they don't think you're the best. So you 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 find yourself scrambling scrambling to try to find enough work to make those that minimum number of billable hours every week every month and ultimately every year and and, and that became a real grind yeah um and i didn't want to sacrifice my integrity because we were responsible for recording our hours every day and I, would, I was never going to sacrifice my integrity by putting down more hours than I actually worked. But it became really tough, you know, making that six and a half or seven hours a day. Um, and you go to the partners and you ask them, you know, give me some work. And they promise to do it and they never do it. Um, it's crazy. So, but, but that was a... That was the, 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 the foundation that led me to do a lot of things that I did later later in my career as a bar executive, a bar association executive, you know, presidents, because I was also president of the, uh, of the uh, African-American Bar Association in St. Louis as well. But I understood, you know, what black associates go through in these firms. And then I came to understand what black partners go through in these firms. And that's why, you know, I just pulled together a group of people and over the course of my 35 year career in law, you know, we created programs that um, that helped young associates, uh, black partners to help them get that foothold in the firms, not only because, you know, the firms wanted to feel good, but because they could make meaningful contributions to the firm's bottom line. So one thing I learned was that you got to have a seat at the table because the one thing that these firms 
recognize. And the one thing that they will respond to is money, mm. business, right? So in order to kind of force them to do what they should have been doing all along, you got to be on the right side of the table. In other words, I had to be a client. Mm. I had to be a client. (laughs) You can't do it within the firm. Only the client can kind of mandate things. And so as I started moving up the ladder in my uh, in my corporate capacity, because as uh, when I worked for the local utility, it was called Union Electric at the time, uh, later became Amron, and I became the head of litigation of that company. Well, then I had a seat at the table. Then I was a client. Then I could mandate things. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I left uh, union electric, the utility and started working for uh, Monsanto, which was a much larger client, then I really had a bully pulpit where I could mandate certain things. I can mandate that they have black partners. I can mandate that uh, black associates get our work. I could mandate these things. I can mandate that these law firms have managing partners who look like me. Mm-hmm. And, and I was able to do that. And, you know, and, 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 and I mean, the good Lord has really blessed me in that, in that sense, because um, a lot of folks, a lot of folks got paid. A lot of partners got business, and um, our firms, the firms that uh, that I worked with, they had managing partners who were black. Yeah, you know. So I learned a lot of lessons. Yeah, what was the transition like going from um, the corporate law firm? How easy was that transition to now go as in-house counsel? And when did that occur? Um, and how did you, you know, sort of climb your way up from there? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, I was on the outside. I like to say for, uh, and then I went in house, in corporate. Okay, I lost you for a second. You said you were outside for some time, and then it it, it broke off. I couldn't hear what you said. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I call it. I call it outside because. <laughs> I wasn't in house. Right? Right. So I was outside for about five years. Okay. And then I went in house, but I had a kind of a, a, a foundation for that as well, because I was used to dealing with my clients who were in house. Right. So I had an, uh, an indoctrination, so to speak of, and I knew what clients wanted because I was on the other side and I knew what they demanded of me. So that when I went in-house, I had kind of a format that I could use uh, or a template that I could use in dealing with, now that I'm the client, I know how I can, how to deal with these outside lawyers who are representing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that worked out very well uh, too. And I also knew how not to treat them. Mm-hmm. Um, so after your your first in-house job like i'm just trying to 
understand how does one move up when you go in-house and start working for a large corporation as in-house counsel, what's the career trajectory from there? I mean, it obviously depends on your performance. Yeah. I mean, you got to go in, you got to do well. Right. Um, and that's the one thing in all the programs uh, that, that I created in bar associations and in all the programs to help uh, women and minorities get uh, positions, meaningful positions and meaningful work. Uh, the one thing that I always stressed to uh, to the lawyers that I was that, that I helped is that you got to do the work. You know, I mean, I can get you in mm -hmm. and I will get you in, but you got to do the work. Uh, and some people did not heed that that advice. Right. And I and 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 we had some stories that weren't quite so successful, but other people did. Um, and they became managing partners of the firm and and they got to be the uh, to to uh, to to share the equity in the firm, like equity yeah. partners do. Because you know, firms have all these tiers, right? You got associates, senior associates, um, you got uh, salary partners, equity partners. Well, you know, the equity partners are up here, right? right. Even though their name their, their name is not on the door, uh, mm -hmm. they're up here and they're sharing in the profits of the of the firm, which are substantial. Right? Sure. And so my goal was to get as many of those people, as many of those women and minority attorneys as possible, into that top tier, that equity right. tier. Uh, but but I told them, you know, you got to. Yeah, but but in terms of developing your own career, when you started out as in-house counsel, what was the next promotion and how did that lead to the next promotion? Oh, so, um, yeah, I came in as a litigating attorney. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, I just flat out won some cases that they didn't think I could win. Mm. And so I got the. Um, and, be and believe it or not. You know, my work in the community, again, was kind of an elevating factor as well. Uh, you know, the CEO might read a story about you in the paper. Mm. And that puts a good light, a good face on the company. Mm. Because mm. it's not just Reuben Shelton, you know, black man. It's mm. Reuben Shelton, attorney for Ameren Utility or Reuben Shelton, uh, lead litigator for uh monsanto company right it's always they can always tag on that line that um you know the executive suite they love to see hmm. obviously as long as it's a good line, right, <laughs> right? Yeah. you don't want to do anything negative because they're going to put that on there again you know hmm. good or bad they're going to put that tag on you so uh in a positive light um helped when um, the Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court sends a letter to your CEO thanking him for allowing me to do the work that I do for the Bar Association. And that happened on more than one occasion, right? And so it helps when you get an award from an organization, a prestigious organization, and it's in the paper. And again, it's Reuben Shelton, lawyer for a Monsanto company. They love that. You know? Yeah. Um, so those sorts of things help. So you can't divorce 
your, at least I don't think you can. You can't divorce your professional life, your global professional life from your, from your job, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Because one is going to feed off the other. And that, I, that's just a fact of life. I mean, I know that I got put on boards because of my relationship with my company. Right. But I also know that the good work that I did on those boards helped to elevate me within my company. So one kind of feeds off the other. Uh, you know, but the bottom line is that you got to do the work. And the story that I tell, because it's absolutely true, uh, when I went, I went from my, uh, my utility job, I was on loan. I still had the job, but I was on loan with the attorney general for the state of Missouri, who was a friend of mine, because he knew my work, he knew what I could do. And he wanted me to lead a team to sue the tobacco companies back in the day when everybody was suing tobacco companies, right? And so my boss allowed me to take off, and I was off about 18 months, to go sue tobacco companies. Uh, We got a $6.7 billion settlement uh, for the state of Missouri. Uh, but instead of going back to my, 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 my current job, Monsanto company recruited me to come out there, but you know why? Because I was in the paper all the time, (laughs) all the time, because it was during that time that I was also the first African-American president of the bar association of metropolitan St. Louis. So I'm in the paper for doing that. I'm in the paper because we're suing tobacco companies. I'm in the paper giving interviews when we make the settlement. So Monsanto said, okay, well, oh, by the way, and I'm going to tell you when they, um, when they asked me to come interview as the president of the Bar Association, I gave um, a summit, a diversity summit to help get jobs for women and minorities. And guess who was in the audience? Monsanto company, right? <laughs> They were there, and uh, and it was through that summit. A uh, young lady, she came up and asked me if I would interview with them, and I said sure. But I was actually looking forward to going back to my current job because I really liked it. Um, and so for about a month or so, I never sent her my resume, and you know I figured you know I forgot all about it until she called me. Hmm. She called me and says, you know. You know what the hell is going on? Where's your resume, right? And then one thing led to another, and I uh, took the job out there because it was a really cool job. But it was right at the beginning of um, it was right at the beginning of the introduction of a new product that they have that was very controversial. Uh, it was uh, genetically modified seeds, right? And I don't know if you know anything about that, but there are a whole lot of people that do. You know, you wouldn't know this, but my undergraduate degree is in biotechnology. So I am someone who did research on uh, genetic modification of organisms. So, yes. There you go. There you go. There you go. So you know all about it and you know the controversy that surrounds it. But a huge controversy. It was a product that did not exist uh, commercially prior to like 1996. Uh, And we really didn't start rolling it out big time until... I don't know, like 1998. Well, they hired me to come on in 1999. 
and we were getting sued left and right, just just crazy. You know, we don't want this stuff on the market. You know, it's killing other plants. Da, 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 da. And so when they brought me on, they put me in charge of that litigation. And the first thing they told me was, we have to win every case. And we were getting sued like crazy. I mean, we had like maybe 500 cases in the pipeline. And the thing was, is that if we had lost one case, that was going to be a precedent for the. And our business model would be shot and all the billions of dollars they had put into the research uh, would go down the pot. Right? Mm. So they said, you cannot lose one case. Right? And in the 20 years I was there, we did not lose one case. One of them all. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. And we went to we went to three Supreme Courts with our cases. We went to the United States Supreme Court several times. Mm. Right. We went to the Canadian Supreme Court and we went to the Supreme Court in Australia. All of those were my cases. Right. Mm. And, you know, thank God. You know, I mean, you're talking about a brother that was doing a lot of praying. <laughs> But my grandma would say, the good Lord liked you, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, that story reminds me of uh, Ken Frazier, who's the CEO of Merck. And that was sort of yeah. his rise within the company was when they had Vioxx. And he came up with the strategy that they would fight each case individually exactly. uh, rather than taking it as a class action. Ultimately, they said, OK, that brother knows what he's doing. And ultimately, he winds up uh, being CEO. Uh, so you move over to to Monsanto uh, as you know you you run in this litigation. At that point, you're not chief of litigation. You're just nope. you're just running a certain section. Uh, you know what helps you? Obviously, simply put, it seems like just winning those cases help them lead and propel you to become chief of litigation. But I'm sure there were some other things that uh, played a role in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it goes back to the uh, to my activity in the community. You know, Monsanto was a company that had a real image problem mm. and any positive uh, press that they could get. They just loved it. Right. And I was doing things in the community. And again, when they were when, when uh, the press would report on it, it wasn't just Reuben Shelton. It was Reuben Shelton, attorney for Monsanto. Da, 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 da. Uh, CEO loved it. Uh, you know, my, my boss, who was the general counsel, uh, he loved it. Uh, and I think the I think the greatest uh, the greatest compliment that I ever got was from our um, our public affairs director. Right. And we're sitting in a meeting with the executive team. Um, and this one guy who wasn't a big fan of mine, uh, he was complaining that I was spending a lot of time. Uh, doing outside stuff, right? I mean, now never mind that I'm getting everything I need to get done on the inside. You know, he's complaining because of stuff that I'm doing on the outside. And our director of public affairs, he didn't have to say anything, but he jumped in. He says, "Look, he says I don't know about the rest of y'all, but the stuff Ruben is doing is just great for our company." Right? He says he's putting a face on a company that needs a really good boost in the uh, in the public affairs arena right 
and my CEO was sitting there, my general counsel was sitting there. I mean, they were all sitting there. And, and, and this guy just looked like a duck. Well, you know, God rest his soul, uh, because I just found out that that same guy that was complaining, mm. yeah, I just found out that he died last week. Mm. Yeah. So, um, um, and I had no ill will toward him. Yeah, sure. Some people are just like that. You know. So while you're doing all of this, you also have a parallel track beyond just the local uh, St. Louis community or Missouri community uh, that you're working in. You're also fairly involved in Cap uh, Alpha Psi fraternity. Why don't you talk to us a bit about what that journey was like? Yeah, well, I've been a Kappa since 1974. This is my 46th year. Uh, November 23 will be 46 years in the frat. Um, and it's just been a ride. Uh, I mean, I love the fraternity. I really didn't think much about it when I went to the University of Kansas. It wasn't until a guy came to the door and knocked on it and told me I ought to think about it. Because at that time, I'm just, I'm just thinking about playing basketball, right? So, you know, I thought about it. One thing led to another. And, you know, I had several teammates. We went to an informational meeting. We all said we were going to do it. Um, but I was the only one who wound up actually doing it. Mm. Uh, you know, the coach didn't want us to do it. And, and I caught hell for that. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I, think my, <laughs> I think my only saving grace was that we already had three cappers on the team. Okay. And they had just had a really successful year uh, in basketball. And so they showed that it could be done. You know, you could do both, but my coach still didn't like it. Uh, but, you know, did it anyway and it worked out okay. So, um, you know, I was, I became, I held several offices uh, in my undergraduate chapter. I became pole mark of my undergraduate chapter. Uh, I became pole mark of my alumni chapter uh, pole mark of the province, the regional province, and now and now grand pole mark. So I, I've been really blessed to to hold every top position at every level that I've served. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing I like about Kappa is, I mean, it's an infrastructure that's been here for over a hundred years that that you can use to do some really good things. Mm -hmm really good things i mean you don't have to reinvent the wheel you know we are helping so many people i mean even in the face of this pandemic you know brothers are out there feeding people brothers are out there um uh, uh taking care of the youth with the school lunch programs and and you know i follow social media because i like to see what the brothers are doing and it just makes me so proud to see all the things that they are doing in the midst of this pandemic, being safe and socially distancing, but, <laughs> but they are still doing some, some wonderful stuff. I mean, we've got some challenges. There's no doubt about it. We're facing some of the challenges that, that all Greek letter fraternities face. But um, I mean, I just love this organization because all of the great things that we've done um, and we're going to continue to do, I mean, we wouldn't have been around for over a hundred years if we weren't doing something right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask, going back to the personal, what advice would you offer to a 20 or 30 year old version of yourself? Hmm. Um, I 
I guess implicit in that question is, is there anything that I would do differently? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and again, you know, I start out by saying that, and I said this early on, that if I knew that what I did back then would get me right back to the point where I am now, I'd say, you know, do the same thing I did. All right because I really like where I am now. Everything I've done in my life has gotten me to the point where I am now and I really love where I am. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, at certain stages in my life, you know, I might've worked a little harder on some things that I should have worked on. Um, I might've been a little bit more considerate. I would tell them maybe to be a little bit more considerate uh, to the people that, 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 that you love and, um, you know, as a young athlete, and I think all athletes could tell you this, you have a tendency to be a little arrogant. You know, you, you, you become a little arrogant and you become a little inconsiderate to the feelings and wants of others. And I think if I had to do anything over again, I think I'd, I would change that part. And that's what I would tell a younger Ruben, um, you know, that you might have said some things and treated treated some people uh, you know, a way that you might try it a little differently next time, you know. But other than that, you know, my trajectory, uh, even though I like to tell people this too, if you if you take my life in five-year increments, the plans that I had in year one look nothing like what actually happened <laughs> in year five. <laughs> right. right. It's just, uh, you know, a lot of that is just straight up divine intervention because, uh, and, and, and again, to totally fortuitous because um, I didn't plan it, but boy, it sure has worked out pretty well, I think. Yeah. And during your career as a lawyer, were there some low points that, you know, really had you in a tough spot along the way and how did you overcome those? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, that's just life. That, that, yeah, that, that's just life. And um, you know, I have um, I have helped people that that burned me. Um, I have taken certain actions with the best of intentions mm -hmm. that uh, you know didn't work out like I thought they they would. Um, I have this thing where I don't consider anything a failure. And I got a book that I just read that um, uh, the, the title is sometimes you, sometimes you, but it's sometimes you, sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail, but then they scratch out the letter fail and it becomes sometimes you succeed, sometimes you learn. Mm -hmm. So that's really the title of the book. And and I adopted that that philosophy a long time ago that I really don't see any failures, but I do see um, uh, learning opportunities. And I think, um, and I found that out in some of the stuff that happened to me over the years. You know, sometimes you put trust in people who probably don't really deserve it, but you don't know it at the time. Uh, but in law, that happens quite a bit. You know, it's um, it's just one of those things. You know, you help people, they don't appreciate it. That's okay. 
because the goal was to help them. How they respond to it, you know, that's not. I mean, that, 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 that that's not my responsibility. How they respond to it. Yeah. And I would probably do it again. So yeah, low points, but most of it would come, I believe, in in the uh, in the act of trying to help people, and then they turn right around and stab you in the back. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But would I do it again? Yeah. Because again, the goal is to help the people. How they respond to it, that's not my issue. Sure. How do you? What would be your suggestion to young people in terms of how they extract the most value out of uh, mentorship relationships, so to speak? Um, I mean, the best way is to listen. Um, I'm going through a situation right now that's a little problematic because I've got a little brother in the uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters program, right? And I've been with him for almost nine years now. And and he's going through a few things uh, simply because he does not listen sometimes. Right? He could avoid a lot of grief in his life if he would just listen. Right? Um, and if you're going to have a mentor, I mean, the mentor is there for a reason. A mentor is to help you avoid some of the pitfalls that you don't have to have to experience, uh, especially when they have gone through the same thing and suffered that experience and they can tell you how to avoid it. But I don't know. People look at mentors in a lot of different ways. Uh, some people look at mentors as a checkbook. Hmm. Right. Um, some people look at mentors as a as a sounding block, which is fine. You, know, you just need somebody to talk to. Uh, but I truly believe that most mentors are a complete package. You know, they'll help you any way that they can, whether it's financially, emotionally, strategically. I mean, that's why they're there. They've obviously taken an interest in you for a reason. So don't blow it. <laughs> right? <laughs> don't blow it. Just you know listen to them and you know they and i truly believe that everything they say may not work out the way you want it to work out but you know a good mentor has great intentions and for the most part a good mentor can make your life a lot easier so what's on the horizon for you and any closing remarks you might want to share yeah, yeah, and 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 this is a, you know, this is a mantra for me. And you know, in Cap Alpha Psi, and in every other leadership position that I've held, I've always uh, been one to uh, break barriers and build bridges, right? Um, because I think that's that's the only way that we as a society are going to reach that optimal level that we can achieve. You know, we got to break down barriers, build bridges. Um, but along with that, and I especially tell our young our young people this, brother, um, your life trajectory is going to depend an awful lot on the people with whom you associate. And I can't get this through the young people's heads. And I tell them that, you know, if you're going to hang around with clowns, 
you know, you're going to be living your life in a circus for a long, long time. You know, you have to be around people. And this goes for adults, too. And I tell people in the legal profession and, and in any other group that I that I operate in, because I think this is so critical. You got to be around people who are going to push you, who are going to make you better. Um, and if you're around somebody that's going to bring you down or trying to get you to do some things um, that are going to hurt you in any way, then you need to pivot and get the hell out of Dodge as quickly as you possibly can. And this just isn't it. This is just not for kids. Right. Um, we're seeing this in the Oval Office right now. That when you surround yourself with crooks, man, your future is <laughs> is, is is not going to be that bright. I mean, you may find it beneficial in the short term, but in the long term, man, it just it just does not work out. It does not work out. Certainly, certainly. Um, you know, we've been over an hour, and I promise not to hold you much more than that. If you have any closing remarks, we can close with that. Um, but no, I just want to I just want to thank you for for doing this. I uh, you know, I've done several of these. In, in the last couple of months. Right? And I really enjoy it because I really enjoy getting the word out. Um, you know, my, my, my thoughts, you know, they're not sacrosanct and, you know, and, and I'm sure a lot of people hold the belief that, that I, that I hold, but um, I mean, I've been blessed and I'm not ashamed to say that it's uh I've had divine intervention in my life for a long, long time. And it is it has taken me places that I never thought I would go. You know, it is it has healed some wounds that I thought were fatal. <laughs> uh, and so I always have to get that out, man. I just you know, I, I just gotta say it. Mm -hmm. And and I still believe that uh, the best is yet to come. This is year one. So in year five, I have no idea what it's going to look like. <laughs> if you take it in five-year increments, I have no idea what year five is going to look like. But, man, I, 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 I would bet a whole bunch of money that it's going to look really, really good. Yeah. And that's for all of us, brother. That's for all yeah. of us. Yes, indeed. So this has been wonderful uh, to, to have you share your story, uh, the journey that you've traveled coming from humble beginnings, uh, making your way through college, becoming a lawyer and really being an accomplished uh, professional in that field. You've talked about the importance of learning to compete. Uh, you've talked about the importance of hard work being the differentiator. Uh, you've overemphasized uh, the importance of service uh, in the public interest, not just for personal edification, but for also uh, in a sense, the tangential benefits that it can confer. You've talked about the importance of really uh, being committed to wanting to help others, if nothing else, but for the purpose of helping their lives be better. Uh, my guest today has been Cap Alpha Psi National President, Grandpa Mark Rubin A. Shelton III. My name is Lalu Davis Yemitin, and you've been listening to my brother podcast. All right. All right. Very good.